Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Tell me why. Every week at this time, Graham Finley joins us here on News Talk to answer a question that has perplexed our listeners. Today's question is. Humans have known for over a century about the greenhouse effect of CO2 emissions. Why, oh why, did we leave it until now to do something about it? Graham, inspire us. <laughs> well, I mean, I think we all know the answer, right? Um, we, you know, it, it's not fun to address climate change when we can drive our big gas guzzling car around right now, right? I mean, I think it's really, you know, the human condition here is, uh, you know, we all know that we're not quite as rational as we would like to be. Anybody who bought a house in the last, before the last crash knows about our, our inability to, do, to calculate risk and so forth. And climate change, it's big, it's complicated, and um, our brains are just not made to deal with it. So, um, and, and all of these things, because they really are the human condition, have been studied by psychologists and economists and philosophers and, and political scientists for ages, uh, because one of the, the good things is we're smart enough, we're rational enough to know that we're irrational, and so there, we've found ways by working together to deal with it. Just climate change presents a particularly bad problem. It's really good to just compare it to um, COVID. You know, COVID has provoked a very different response. Why? Because you could get COVID and you could be dead in two weeks. That tends to focus the mind. That's the kind of thing our brains are really good at. You know, if the threat is immediate, we react, and, uh, and that saved our lives, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago uh, when we were evolving these particular brain structures. Um, we also, we prefer immediate gains over others, uh, and that, that leads to what people call a present bias. So we want something now because we know we may not still have it or we may not get it later. Uh, we want um, immediate pleasure rather than, you know, saving responsibly for our retirement down the road. You know, all of those things were hardwired into us to survive, but also prevented us from doing smart things. It reminds um, me of a friend of mine that he, say, he said once, if I woke up in the morning and I had a six pack, I would definitely do all the things I needed to do to maintain it. But I just don't have the motivation or the interest in doing all the things I knew to need to do to get the six pack. So it's like, it's sort of the tedium and the sacrifices you have to make to get to where you want, even though you want to get there, are just too much because it's yeah, going to take really so long. that's a really great example. I mean, so... We, as a species, we are, we're tremendous, and this is both an economic and a psychological thing, right? Um, we are loss-averse, right? So if you ask people, would they forgo being given $5, 5 euro, um, most people are pretty much okay with that for, you know, something like climate change. If you ask people, would you give 5 euro towards climate change? Well, I mean, again, you may not think that's too much money, but, you know, people are much less likely to do so. The same thing is true with the six-pack. If you have a six-pack, you might say, well, I really enjoy this, right? You know, um, I'm going to keep it going and, you know, I can just maintain as opposed to do the hard graft to get it in the first place. Um, but, you know, as with um, COVID, right, you know, if you've got your health, you might be very, very afraid of losing it. Whereas if you've got a pretty comfy lifestyle, which involves driving two cars and, you know, eating lots and lots of meat and, you know, uh, you're running your air conditioning all the time, uh, which is something we may need in the future in this country uh, because it's hot, you know, and it's going to be hot, I guess, in the future, uh, in the immediate future. You know, if you've got a very nice lifestyle, you're going to be really averse to, to uh, making sacrifices, as you said, just uh, in favor of something which 
you just don't really feel. And, and again, there are many, many ways in which this expresses itself. You know, for example, we can only really have relationships with about 150 people. And so it's very hard for, you know, real relationships. It's really hard for us to try and sacrifice things for people who are number 151, let alone, you know, millions and millions of people whose lives are really going to be much more immediately affected by climate change. Similarly, we can only care about a few generations. We can care about our great-grandparents and maybe, you know, treasure their projects and we'd feel bad about selling our great-grandparents' house or something like that, uh, just as we can only really sort of care about our great-grandchildren. Our great-great-grandchildren, well, they can take care of themselves. So, so there, there's that, and then there are these economic uh, biases and fallacies there's the sunk cost fallacy, which is related to my lifestyle point, which is, you know, if you've already bought a car, right, or if we've already as a society gone with fossil fuels and it worked out pretty well for us, we really are uh, unwilling to sort of give that up. We've already put a lot of money into this. And so, but you know, not I'm going to drive my Prius until it falls apart, but, you know, I'm not going to sell it tomorrow. I understand that. But do you think that it's also about like me saying, OK, I really want to do something for climate change and I drive a diesel car, so I want to change that. But then I see all the people on my road who are also driving diesel cars. And I'm like, well, if I make these sacrifices and nobody else is doing it, then I'm going to feel like a chump. You know, that like, yeah, un- so it needs to be a government led thing or, or at least sort of more enforced than, than maybe we want it to be. Yeah, and that's the, the big one, which is we have to do this collectively, right? Uh, and this is a, what people call a collective action problem. Um, and, and these collective action problems are, are particularly difficult in conditions of uncertainty, which is true about the future, and um, where situations of complexity, where you know it's an incredibly complex problem, whereas the great thing about COVID is it's one virus and you do not want to get it, right? So yeah, this collective action problem is we all have to do something together, but if I see people driving around in their diesel cars, right, or turning on the air conditioners, and if I know a little bit about human beings, and I know that if, even if I turn my air conditioning off, you know, other people aren't doing so. Uh, and even on the international level, you know, when, when one country says, well, but China is still developing and, you know, burning coal and things like that, you know, why should we, you see all these arguments when people argue about climate change. Um, why should we sac- make sacrifices here in Ireland when, you know, China with vastly more people is not to people's perceptions? Um, and uh, and that's why these government, you know, government really has to step in. There are, you know, a lot of interesting things about groups which make might make us feel fairly optimistic that we will eventually do something. Um, so, for example, groups are better at estimating what we should do and getting the facts right than individuals. Because um, if we're an individual, we're we're sort of on our own. It's we all of our motivated irrationality can come into play where we, you know, say, look, I really don't want to give up my diesel car, so I'm just going to you know, go with the guy on the internet who says diesel is actually better than solar or whatever. Diesel is better than, you know, uh, hybrid cars and things like that. Um, Because we really do have a psychological tendency to try and confirm both what we already believe, but also what What we we really want to believe. So, So there's that. But, you know, and so you'd think that organizations like businesses would actually be better at doing this. But businesses, which used to often invest in the business, they would take profits, they'd invest in the business, they'd train up their employees so that they would have better abilities. And, and in the long run, the business would be more you know, sturdy and resilient and would, would, would prosper. 
a lot of their rationality has been made a lot more like our rationality in the terms of they have to just get through this quarter. Um, and in fact, they have to get through this quarter in terms of returning shareholder value rather than have the business just be productive. So, so business is probably not the place to look for. And that's why most of our collective action problems, like the problem of free riding on the Lewis or on the bus, are solved by governments who fine you if you ride the Lewis without a ticket, um, or at least so I'm told. Uh, so, you know, that's great. But in the case of, of climate change, um, basically, we, we have a hard time even coming up with who's emitting. But even if we knew that, it's really hard to hold people accountable. And that's because um, it's an international problem. Again, I'm old enough to know to be around when we cared about the environment simply as a place where we didn't want to pollute. Right. And pollution is the kind of environmental problem which everyone could really get behind. People are like, oh, my gosh, the river is on fire. Right? What's the difference between pollution and climate change then? Well, that's the thing. I mean, so we think sometimes of climate change in terms of pollution. uh, But I mean, pollution, you know, the way we thought about it in the 70s and 80s when I was a kid, you know, is something you can really see and taste, right? You can see the smog, you can, um, you know, can smell the polluted river, you know, it's affecting your health pretty immediately, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and all these things. And it's your river, it's your community, uh, that you can, you know, that you're experiencing this. And, and so whereas climate change, um, you may or may see the effects here. Like I, I was stimulated to, to, to talk about this, this today because um, in my native Canada, they have a heat wave, which is mind blowing in, in its scale. I mean, they, the, they broke the record by 1.6 degrees Celsius for the hottest place in Canada. I think that's, that's also dramatic. sort of part of the problem. Like we have, we, we are, I just came out of the weather there and they saying we're going to have a heat wave this week, but people sort of enjoy that. It's nice to have oh, a yeah, no, sun. Oh yeah, people are like, bring it on, right? You know, um, but I mean, we might get a short, sharp shock, like something like that or something, you know, like there'll be a flood be a or, hose or a hurricane pipe or something like that. <laughs> but we might forget, right? So whereas, you know, pollution accumulates and that's actually another reason why we don't do anything you know, we, we, we respond, we tend to think of things in terms of a linear way. And so often when people read a graph, I do this, you do this, we all do this, you just imagine it's going to go in the same trajectory forever. Whereas, you know, in many cases, especially involving climate change, it goes up for in a certain way and then it rockets up, right? So it, it doesn't grow in a linear fashion, it grows in an exponential fashion. Yeah. And, and, and we have a really bad time trying to conceive of that, right? So, so the immediate threats, I mean, pollution looks like an immediate threat. It's something we can see. It's something we see getting worse. Um, and, and it's not in the far future, and it doesn't involve people far away. So a lot of the, the, the attempts to try and, and, and get us to care about climate change have been trying to bring it down to the, to, for the kind of people we are. Um, and that means, you know, you have it people in smaller groups. And people in smaller groups, like uh, not the world, not your country even, but your community, your city even, um, is a place where you can get a lot of people much more motivated to deal with climate change. And I think um, and that so they are, you, like in community groups, I, like certainly when there are actionable tasks that we can do, like the reusable cups, the reusable plastic bags, uh, the, you know, the re- replacing plastic bags with those, these bags for life. People want to do things that are sort of small and actionable. They're willing to do it. But it seems like the those are all, I've heard scientists say that like, all the reusable compostable cups and straws in the world aren't going to deal with the bigger issue, which is agriculture, which is industry, which are not individual tasks. And there's this sort of bystander effect where people think, OK, well, I can't do anything about the number of cows that are being farmed in Ireland, so I'm just not going to do anything. 
Yeah, I mean, the bystander effect is is a combination of, yeah, I can't do anything, plus it's not my job, right? And mm-hmm. again, you know, this is all just so kind of evolutionary stories, but uh, people think that, you know, again, if we were facing as a small community, uh, you know, a lion, it's always a lion for some reason, you know, um, it may not be my job to kill the lion, right? My job may be to, like, run to a safe distance and watch the lion killer kill the lion, right? Um, you know, and, and that seems to have given us um, this tendency to, to, to do this. It's not my job. And of course, the bystander effects gets bigger and bigger, the more people you're involving. And so you're right. I mean, if you bring it down to your community, that uh, people, you know, look around at the people around them, people they sort of know, and again, this 150 people they, they can have relationships with. And if they see them doing things, they're much more likely to do something. And that's, this can be extended beyond just reusable cups to actually doing something about climate change, doing, you know, making some sacrifices. So when people know what their neighbor's energy consumption is, for example, they're much more likely to reduce theirs, right? If they realize that they're actually like the ones who are are using more energy than the people around them, people will make an effort because we want to, we have these deep social, I mean, we're antisocial in the sense that we try to do things to maximize our own immediate pleasure, but we're also social. We realize that and we, evolution has selected in the long run that we should work together um, and that we actually will survive. And so people are social creatures and they want to be approved of by people around them. They want to agree with the people around them and they want to, um, you know, be respected and, and admired maybe by, by the people around them. So are you them. suggesting and, and some sort really of like powerful tool. gamification where we can all see each other's energy usage and we're competing with each other to be the best? Yeah, I think the gamification of like everything is is something which is really, really worrisome in the sense that uh, that's um, those are really immediate hits. But they c- can be used to um, to good avail, I suppose, uh, by by giving people badges and, you know, having the, having them compete. I think ultimately we want some kind of level of solidarity. Uh, which uh, gamification doesn't always encourage. Uh, you know, and again, a lot of the more depressing psychological experiments show just how easily we are divided up into teams and then we suddenly hate the other team, uh, right? So we want to exploit, yeah. the, exploit the pro-social part of um, us being on a team without, you know, wanting to, you know, attack Dublin 10, you know, because we live in Dublin 8 or something like that. Um, But, you know, one of the exciting things about the Paris Agreement and the way that um, international organizations are approaching climate change is to to recognize this. And so a lot of the work is going on at city and community level, community level, rather than, you know, at, at state level, even though states are the, the ones with the sticks, they're the ones who can most effectively regulate, you can change people's motivations at community level and in cities, cities have a big role to play. And then hopefully those changed motivations will feed up into um, national politics, for example, which hopefully will inform national politicians, uh, international relations strategies and and foreign policies. Now, that's a big ask. We have not seen the numbers in terms of polls about people caring about climate change to push it to the top of people's concerns, um, shift to where it's a majority of people in most countries. Uh, And that's another reason why we don't do anything. We just haven't gotten the universal agreement, at least in in, in a number of countries. Some countries have done amazing things, um, which would make politicians, who are the ultimate short-termist people, uh, pay attention. It has to, as you say, yeah, become a voting issue. Um, I have some texts here from listeners. Uh, one text from Barry says, I heard one climate scientist describe climate change as a problem so problematic that it was as if the devil himself had devised it as the perfect unsolvable problem for human beings. We are just not equipped to deal with the incremental change and consequences that are far in our future or possibly beyond our lifespan. 
I think. Yeah, I think that's, and actually one really important point is, you know, the details and the sheer complexity of it, while important to academic debate, aren't super helpful for for getting people to care about. And the devil is truly in the details in this particular space. One really important thing I failed to do, and I really want to do now, is, and I think Barry is completely right, you know, if we frame it as a threat, the way the devil would love us to, our, our psychology just really doesn't like that. Whereas if we look at all the positives that could result, if we could talk about saving lives or maybe providing a, a decent environment for my children's children, right, which is, you know, about 100 and something years, you know, we can maybe, you know, get a lot more people on board because even the most diehard climate skeptic would want to invest a certain amount of money, even if there was a relatively small percentage chance that it would save their grandchildren, say, from from a terrible disease like COVID. I think you're right. COVID has shown that like we can really mobilize very quickly when something is immediate. So maybe we need to frame the immediacy of it. We just heard in the last segment about, uh, you know, a famine that's happening in Madagascar, famines that are happening across the world now that are absolutely not down to war or crisis. It's just simply climate change. We have another text in that says, I don't think we're able to get our head around it because especially in Ireland, the climate seems fairly all right at the moment. It takes a mental leap to be worried about it. Graham, Thank you so much. Uh, we're going to take a quick break now and we'll be back in a few minutes. Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again.